Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, Send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Listening to the Luke Haskell Show on the Four Persons Network. Luke takes a deep dive every show into history, theology, and scripture. If you want to truly be educated, make way for the hammer of heretics himself, ladies and gentlemen, Luke Haskell. show in this new year, and we haven't had a show in three weeks, and that was partly by design, but it wouldn't have mattered if it wasn't by design, because for two solid weeks, Blog Talk Radio didn't work, so we couldn't have had a show, even if we'd wanted to, so it's amazing how Providence sometimes meshes with our plans. Um, Luke, how are you doing this evening? Uh, I'm doing great, John. So, another irony, and I don't believe in coincidences, is um, today is the uh, day that we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. And that is an event that will loom large tonight. So I just want to start by saying that John is a very different gospel than uh, than Matthew. No less true, no less inspired. Uh, but whereas as Matthew's gospel is a brilliantly written and brilliantly presented court case, um, John's gospel is a symphony. I, I, I just that's just the best way I could describe it. It's poetry. It's symphony. Uh, it's our faith, uh, a deep dive into the grace and richness of our, in, in a way that centuries, uh, 
theologians and, and, and masters of the faith have been exploring John's gospel, and, and, and I don't think they've gotten anywhere near the bottom of it, have they? Well, John's gospel is what I consider to be the, the deepest gospel. Uh, definitely, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, it's basically summed up as the wedding feast of the Lamb, written through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, through the disciple whom he loved. Now, why is John called the disciple whom he loved? Because John is a symbol of all disciples. All disciples are loved by Christ. He didn't love just one. All who have been baptized into Christ Jesus and all who take Mary as their own, which we are called to, what Jesus uh, told us to at the cross spiritually, and the early church saw, and uh, Origen, uh, who lived about 184 A.D. to about 253 A.D., one of the early church fathers, uh, does a beautiful job of, of, of explaining this, this connection and this need uh, of, of Mary in our lives in order to see this, the, you know, the spiritual nature of the gospel. Origen writes, we may therefore make bold to say that the gospels first fruits of all the scriptures but that of the gospels uh, gospel that of john is the first fruits no one can apprehend the meaning of it except he hath lain on jesus's breast and received from jesus mary to be his mother also such as one must he become who is to be another john and to have shown to him like john by jesus himself Jesus as he is. For if Mary, as those declare, who with sound mind extol her, had no other son but Jesus, and yet Jesus says to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and not behold you have this son also. Then he virtually said to her, Lo, this is Jesus whom you bore. Is it not the case that everyone who is perfect lives himself no longer? He's quoting Galatians 2.20 here. But Christ lives in him. And if Christ lives in him, then it is said of him to Mary, Behold your son, Christ. What a mind then must we have to enable us to interpret in a worthy manner this work, though it be committed to the earthly treasure house of common speech? of writing which any uh, passerby can read and which can be heard when we read aloud by anyone who lends to it his bodily ears. What shall we say of this work? He who is accurately to apprehend what it contains should be able to say with truth we have the mind of Christ, that we may know those things which are bestowed on us by God. Now, Origen believed that to have the mind of the Christ included believing that Mary is our spiritual mother. And it is through the mind of Christ that the deep spiritual nature of Scripture is revealed to the soul. Luke wrote, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and for the resurrection of many in Israel and for a sign which shall be contradicted. And thy own soul a sword shall pierce that out of many hearts thoughts may be revealed. 
this is so deep. If you think that the mystical body of Christ is only a metaphor and not a heavenly reality, then you will never get off the surface of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Thoughts, of the, thoughts of the mystical body of Christ are revealed from many hearts through our spiritual mother of the body. Of course, this is also the spiritual essence of the rosary, which is a meditation on the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Uh, good, the books, good point. Yeah, it's it's the there's only one way you could you you could really get into this, <laughs> and that's you have to believe it's the, the mystic body is true. So books are books not of man but of God. So as we begin the Gospel of John. Let's keep in mind the marriage feast between the word made flesh and the bride. Let's keep in mind the words of the prophet Hosea, and uh, I'll read them. And I will espouse thee to me forever, and I will espouse thee to me in justice, in judgment, in mercy, and in commiserations. And I will espouse thee to me in faith, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day I will hear saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and these shall hear Jezreel, and I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy on her that was without mercy, and I will say to that which was not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say thou art my God. as, as we talk, John, about in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is marrying a Gentile bride, and the cross is a marriage bed. Right. So we'll begin with John 1, 1 through 5, unless you, you, want, you want to comment at the beginning of this. No, no I... I... Have this sorted out exactly where I want to interject. Okay. Okay. So in the beginning uh, uh, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him and without him was made nothing that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men and the light shineth in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. The word himself gave existence, being. Through the word, matter came into being. Science and religion are, are complementary if, if you can accept the beginning of matter established at, by an entity that transcends the science he created. The Eucharist transcends the science he established for us to, to live under. So an entity that, that, that always existed because something cannot come from nothing. So the first material reality came into being from the word, which became flesh and dwelt among us. We're talking about Jesus here, of course. Uh, It was a Catholic priest named George uh, uh, Lemaitre that created the Big Bang Theory. So the Bigel account of the creation of of the world begins with light, and and so does the Big Bang Theory. Uh, It begins with the explosion of a singularity of almost infinite density into an explosion of light. So as it expanded, it created an expanding universe, uh, according to this theory, and it established freezing periods where at certain points the vibrations are, for imagery, the word, 
begin to form mm-hmm. higher and higher levels of matter, starting with subatomic particles, next molecular structures, and, and so on and so on, until you had a universe of light. And as molecular structures built up into mass, you begin to have light bend around mass, creating the concept of time. So there was light before there's a solar system and planets moving around the, the, the suns, creating the concept of day and night. So the word, the creative aspect of the I am, who even said before Moses was, I am, was incarnated through the room of the Virgin Mary and became man. Uh, Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, For let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, whom being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and in habit found as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient unto death, even to the death of the cross. For which cause God also hath exalted him and hath given him a name which is above all names, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those that are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that the Lord uh, Jesus Christ is in the glory of God the Father. So uh, as, as we did in Matthew, I, I love to go back to Haddock's commentary. It's just a beautiful commentary and gives these extra little insights. It fills in the gaps. Mm-hmm. So, so with Haddock's, uh, uh, in verse 1, and it begins with, In the beginning of all time and created existence, for this word gave it being, which we see in John 1, 1 3. Therefore, before the world was, which you see John 17, 5, or from all eternity was the word. He who is to God what man's word is to himself, the manifestation or the expression of himself to those without him, uh, on the origin of this most lofty and now forever consecrated title of Christ, this is not the place to speak. It occurs only in the writings of the seraphic apostle was with God, uh, is what John says, having a conscious personal existence distinct from God as one is from the person he is with, but inseparable from him and associated with him, where the Father is used in the same sense as God here, was God in the substance and essence of God, or was possessed of essential or proper divinity, Thus, each of these brief but pregnant statements in the complement of the other, correcting any uh, misapprehensions which the others might occasion, was the word eternal. It was not the eternity of the Father, but of a conscious personal existence distinct from him and associated with him, was the word thus with God. It was not the distinctness and the fellowship of another being, as if there are more gods than one but of one who was himself God in such a sense that the absolute unity of the Godhead, the great principle of all religion is only transferred from the region of shadowy abstraction to the region of essential life and love. But why all this definition not to give us any abstract information about certain mysterious distinctions in the Godhead, but solely to let the reader know who it was that in the fullness of time was made flesh 
After each verse, then, the reader must say, it was he who was thus and thus and thus described who was made flesh. The same. Uh, in verse 2, the word is used, the, the word the same is used. See what property of the word the stress is laid upon, his eternal distinctness and unity from God the Father. In verse 3, things, all things absolutely, as is evident from John 1.10, 1 Corinthians 8.9, Colossians 1.16, but put beyond question by what follows. Without him, not, there, there was nothing, not one thing made, not one thing brought into being that was made. This is denial of the eternity and non-creation of matter, which was held by the whole thinking world outside of Judaism and Christianity. Or rather, its proper creation was never so much as dreamt of saved by the children of revealed religion. In him was life. Essentially, the originally, as the previous verses show to be the meaning, thus he is the living word, or as he is called in 1 John 1.1, the word of life, the life and the light of men. All that in men which is true life, knowledge, integrity, intelligence, willing subject to God, love to him and to their fellow creatures, wisdom, purity, holy joy, Rational happiness, all this light of men has its fountain in the essential original life of the word. He shineth in the darkness. In this dark fallen world or in mankind sitting in darkness in the shadow of death with no ability to find the way either of truth or of holiness. In this thick darkness and consequence of intellectual and moral obliquity, the light of the word shineth by all the rays, whether of natural or revealed teaching, which men apart from the incarnation, the darkness comprehended it not, did not take it in a brief summary of the effect of all the strivings of his unincarnate word throughout this wide world from the beginning, and a hint of necessity of it as putting on flesh, if any recovery of men was to be effected. So the evangelist here approaches his grand thesis, so paving his way for the full statement of it in John 1.14, that we may be able to bear the bright light of it and take it uh, in its length, breadth, and depth of height. And, and look, what, look what Haddock's got out of this. And we talked about this, this uh, idea that, you know, these apostles were, were, were fishermen, and the only one who really had, you know, uh, you know, some some schooling was Matthew. Mm-hmm. But and, and we look at what they come up with in just these few words, and right. and, and it just lays a case for they might not have even known the full image they were creating, but they were so enveloped by the Holy Spirit and so guided by the Holy Spirit that they didn't even know but what they were writing was was even to be interpreted and built on and built on and built on as a bottomless well through time even. Right. It's almost as if you can plainly see the, just the divinity just flowing through their, flowing down their arm and into their hand and driving their pen. The three of the Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels because their aim is to give a narration of events. 
and Matthew, which we covered in, in about a dozen or so episodes, was meticulous in his details, and he's constantly taking us back to the Old Testament themes, making the case of Jesus as the Messiah. But if we look at Matthew as like a court deposition or a history course, we have to approach John's gospel as just pure inspired poetry. It's like a theology course. And in the, in the first five sentences, first five eloquent sentences, John confirms the divinity of Jesus as it is entwined in the Trinity. And he does this masterfully. His language so beautifully expresses the mystery of Jesus who was with God and was God. And the Greek verbiage is, is the word theos. And in this context, the most accurate translation is actually the most high God. And it has such a confusing connotation, Luke, because when you first confront this, you say, how can Jesus be with the most high God and yet be the most high God? It, it almost seems contradictory. <laughs> and even more striking, and no first century Jew would have missed this, is that John deliberately reckons back to the first three words of Genesis in the beginning. John is immediately confronting the audience, Jesus as the Most High, and God from eternity past. Now, that's quite a shocking opening considering the church was still in its, in its infancy. John is really hitting you with the full force of the gospel message right out of the gate. He then reemphasizes Jesus as from the beginning with God, and then calls him the creator of all things and the light. John is deliberately taking us back to Genesis and the very act of creation, and you become a little bit dazed when you realize that John is both calling Jesus the God who said, let there be light, and he's calling him that light itself. And again, there's no chance the first Christians who were schooled in Judaism missed this. And, it, and it's, it's, it's an overwhelming paradox that it had to be mind-boggling to the first audience that confronted this. By a simple fisherman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we're on... John 1 through 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to give testimony that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but was to give testimony of the light. Hold on, just one second, Luke. Just one second. Your microphone cut out for a second, so I want to, I want to, uh, Start from verse 6 and, and repeat it all over again because your microphone cut, cut out for just a second. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to give testimony of the light that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but was to give testimony of the light. That was the true light which enlighteneth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now, John the Baptist 
is the one who prepared the way for the Lord. He was not the light, but a messenger of the light. From the beginning, John is showing prophecy fulfilled. Malachi uh, 3.1 tells us, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of the hosts. Of course, Mary brought Jesus into the temple, and Simeon, through the Spirit of God, understood that prophecy was being fulfilled in Jesus when he said, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, behold, this child will set for the fall and for the resurrection of many in Israel. And as we said before, and for a sign which shall be contradicted and the own soul, a sword shall pierce. So John, who wrote the gospel, felt it necessary to distinguish from John the Baptist and the one who is the true light, the true light that enlightens men's souls, enlightens him to eternal truths, enlightens him to the true nature of love or to the true nature of charity, which in its simplest definition is being Christ to man, to the true nature of humility, to the humility to die to self in order to live in truth as is exposed to the soul. The natural law written on man's hearts that many fight against. So he came into the world in a very simple way, a child with parents so poor that he was born in a shelter for animals and the world knew him not. Uh, from such humble beginnings, he would transform the world and create a new heaven and a new earth. Right. And John is, John is really masterful at exploring themes, exploring really deep themes that almost go unnoticed to somebody who's not really looking for them. Uh, for instance, uh, John says something here that would be shocking to our Protestant brothers and sisters if they actually paid attention to it, because Simeon turns to Mary and says, a sword will pierce your heart so that the thoughts of many may be revealed. Well, the idea that the hearts of many would be revealed by the sufferings of Mary is almost anathema to our to our, our <laughs> Protestant brothers and sisters, and yet here is John is putting it right here, right out here in the in the in the open, and then the sheer beauty of John's message here it, it's almost indescribable. It can't be put into words. John is is taking the audacious claims of Matthew and just taking them to another level. He's, he makes the Matthew makes the case of Jesus as the Messiah, as the King. Uh, as the Lord, John is describing him as the light, <laughs> not as a being of light, mind you, but light itself manifested. Uh, he's clearly showing uh, John the Baptist to be the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in Elijah, but he shows us that Jesus is something much more. And John turns a curious phrase in saying that John testified to the light that all might believe through him. I mean, that's that's a, a shocking, that it's, it's a phrase that's almost shocking to the ears because he's identifying the light as a person. And I don't think that had ever been, and been done before, or I'm not aware that it's ever been done before. He first calls Jesus the light, 
and then says that the hearts of all will be revealed through him. So it, he's, he's personifying the light. Um, Luke uses the right term here of, of describing this book, depth. John is directly confronting us with the breadth and depth of our faith and doing so in language that just, just sets our hearts soaring. He closed this stanza with another staggering claim. Just ponder this. The true light that enlightens all men came to a creation that was in darkness. He entered a world that he made, and the world didn't even know him. And it, it staggers the imagination to think what a massive indignity, indignity this is to our God of, of the humility of the way that he manifested himself to us, the, the humbleness that he manifested himself to us, that the creator of everything, the creator of the universe, the creator of the light that's within us himself, manifested himself to us as one of us. And John is just beginning to unpack this, and it, it's, it's beyond imagination. And, and we have that gift to, of faith to look at that light in the Eucharist. And if you look at the world before the Eucharist began to spread uh, and after, it, it's almost like a demonic world was being suppressed. Everywhere you, everywhere you looked in the old world, there was demon possessions just, just everywhere. And Jesus, as the light, is taken into our souls. And as the Eucharist spreads around the, the world, you have billions, then billions of streams of light blinding the demons uh, of, of the earth. It's spreading out around the entire globe. And the mass yeah. has said what? When mass has said what? Every five minutes around the entire globe? Yeah. You know, the, the Eucharist is raised into the air like every five minutes around the entire globe. And and I think that it's striking that uh, you bring this example because now we're at this time where the majority of Catholics in this country do not believe in the real presence in the Eucharist. Uh, and we had a year in 2020 um, that many, where all the churches were closed down for a time, that some have even described as as the uh, abomination of desolation. Desolation means emptiness, and many people believe that that was the the fulfillment of that, the abomination of desolation. And what have we had following this? Well, we've had a dramatic rise in the occult. We've had a dramatic rise in, in, in demonic activity. Just look at the music today, Luke. They're, Not they're, out in the, they're out in the open with the demonic presence in, 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 the, in the music. And you're right. It's not a coincidence at all. It's, it's the natural consequence of going back from, drawing back from the power of the Eucharist that held the demons at bay. Which is the true... Passover for the general redemption of the world before the Father, mm-hmm. and just you know we're gonna we're gonna get into that theme over and over and over again because 
it is synonymous with the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we'll go on to John, and we'll read uh, 111 through 14. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, he gave them power to be made the sons of God, to them that believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, the glory, as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. No prophet is recognized among his own people. Jesus is addressing past prophets and himself when he said, and he said, Amen, I say to you that no prophet is accepted in his own country. In truth, I say to you, there are many widows in the days of Elias in Israel, when heaven was shut up three years and six months, when there was a great famine throughout all the earth, and to none of them was Elias sent, but to Sarepta of Sidon, to, uh, to a widow woman. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elysius, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed by Naaman, the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, hearing these things, were filled with anger, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they brought him to the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, and they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Of course, Jesus did the same, passed through the midst of the crowds who wanted to throw him off a cliff. John says, but as many as, as received him, he gave them power to be made the sons of God to them that believed in his name. Now, for, brother, for our Protestant brothers and sisters, we cannot look at this word belief through 20th century eyes, nor through the Protestant understanding uh, that began to develop just, you know, the last 500 years. Paul writes to the church at Rome at the beginning of his letter, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was made to him of the seed of David, according to the flesh, who was predestinated the son of God in power, according to the spirit of sanctification, by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith in all nations, for his name, among whom are you also called of Jesus Christ. Who is they who we are supposed to be obedient to in this faith? It's the hierarchy of the church. The apostles mm-hmm. were Jews who had never understood the concept of belief outside of living in obedience to the faith of a covenant relationship with God. Uh, in the previous covenant, they, they took on a, a blood oath and curse for breaking the covenant relationship. Uh, Jesus, the, the word made flesh, who came to a Passover to raise the Passover to its true sacramental reality, said, do this in memory of me. When establishing the essential aspect of the new covenant, which put in place the general redemption of the world, this was not a suggestion It was to be accepted in obedience to the faith in order to live in the new covenant. It is is believing in Christ. So if you look at this, John 3.16 has to be a section of belief. 
Before modern English, the word for I believe, uh, pistis in Greek and fide in Latin, uh, they're essentially uh, uh, used as verbs. They meant to adore, to commit to, to be all in, to covenant in. And this understanding complements Paul's call to obedience to the faith. So not to believe, uh, the, the Greek word, if I uh, get it right, is uh, apieth, apiethe. To not live in the Mosaic law was disobedience. You got to think, uh, why would it be any different in the New Covenant? I forgot where I got this, so I will simply say it's not mine, but it really hits home on this. Uh, here are a few Greek uh, dictionary entries for this word, uh, apiethe, uh, from two of the most scholarly and reputable reference works on the Greek of the New Testament. Uh, apiethe, uh, uh, unwillingness or refusal to comply with the demand of some authority to disobey, disobedience. Whoever disobeys that will never have life, literally, will never see life. As we see in John 3, the 3, 6, when we get to it, God's wrath comes upon those who do not obey him, Ephesians 5, 6. Uh, Jonas P. Lau and, and uh, Eugene Albert Nita, Greek-English lexicon in the, in the New Testament, uh, uh, has this as uh, this word means to be disobedient and is a significant term in the Septuagint for disobedience to God. In the New Testament, is used for of the wilderness generation, Hebrews uh, 3:18, that of the flood. In 1 Peter 3:20, all sinners. In Romans 2:8, the Gentiles. And to believe is the opposite. In Acts 14, 1, 2, and unbelief is parallel. We find an absolute use in uh, Acts 14, 2, Romans 15, 31. There's a few other ones. Uh, important phrases are disobeying the word, which is First uh, Peter 2, 8, uh, the gospel, 4, 17, and, and the son uh, disobeying all of this. Uh, uh, we'll see that in John 3, 36. So disobeys occurs only here in John's gospel. It is obviously that the opposite of believes. And so uh, J.B. and Phelps translate refuses to believe. It is possible to argue that the meaning of disobeys throws light on the meaning of believes. That is, this kind of belief is the belief which leads to obedience. Therefore, one may translate, whoever obeys the Son has eternal life, and whoever disobeys the Son will never have life. However, it is better to retain the terms believes and disobeys, since the very lack of clear opposition tends to reinforce the meaning of the respective terms. So these verse are, verses are, are articles of belief. They are articles of belief of, of the new covenant. And man does not live by uh, bread alone, but by every word of God. So it's all obedience to the faith of the entire covenant is summed up in the word faith. And even as, as Pope Benedict said, in this contest, you could say faith alone. Uh, uh, Jesus says, if they do not listen to even the church, treat, the, treat them as heathens and publicans. Jesus says, this is obedience. If they hear you, they hear me. If they reject, reject you, then they reject me and the one who sent me. This is authority. Paul says that the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the principalities and powers in heavenly places through the church. We see here that this authority, guided by the Holy Spirit, even teaches the angels. So 
<laughs> it's truly fascinating to see how the understanding of faith ha- has changed over time, along with the actual definition of the word. Uh, I'm going to go uh, go into this uh, this process of etymology. And when I first discovered this, it, it, it was like a light turned on in my you know in my brain. It just it, it made so much sense of, of of looking at the deeper understanding of what Paul is trying to convey. The entire New Testament basically came came alive with this. I first saw this while I was reading a Bernard L. Marthaler's book called The Creed. And he goes on, from the beginning of Christianity, the words to believe meant to hold dear, to commit to, to be loved. The German equivalent is a word of belieben, which means give allegiance to. To have faith in God is to give allegiance to God and to live in every word. Jesus answered, it is written, man should not live by bread alone, uh, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Faith is also includes a core meaning from the Indo-European root word, root word bidet, uh, bidet. From bidet, we get the source of two words, bide and abide, which carries the association of something that is solid, something that is a binding together to things. The Latin fide and the Greek pistis and the English faith, as it is older root form, all have the same origin and form. Faith is to firmly bind yourself to something, this also refers to trustworthiness in a covenant relationship. We bind belief in a covenant life in obedience to the faith. A covenant relationship is an allegiance, but, but much more. Listen to these words. This is my body. This is my blood. This is a faith and allegiance where man and woman become one flesh. I will spouse you to me in justice. I will spouse you to me forever. I am yours and you are mine. So, we have to have the faith to even believe these words before we could come close to comprehending them. And etymologically, belief is related to a broad range of familiar words from some archaic like life, dear, willing, some still in use like beloved and love. The history of belief in in its various forms ranging from Old English, uh, beloaf to the early modern English synonym beloved, uh, through the 17th century, here's where we got, here's the kicker, what happened. Uh, through the 17th century misspelling that gave us believe instead of believe, B-E-L-E-E-V-E, is a chronicle of its gradual change in meaning. And this is going on right, you know, smack in the middle of the, the Reformation. <clears throat> in the 14th century, about the time of Wycliffe, uh, important changes began to take place that marked the transition from Middle English to Modern English. Uh, the new word faith was coming into use as the English form of the Latin fides. Early evidence of the transition can be seen in two versions of the English Bible attributed to Wycliffe, both based on the Latin Vulgate. So in the first, believe, B-I-L-E-F-E, translates fides, where in the second, faith appears in a number of places, and by the 17th century, the transition was virtually complete. The 1611 King James Authorized Version, authorized by King James, used the word faith 246 times while using belief only once. Belief at that point meaning you know, everything it used to in the covenant relationship. And the Oxford Dictionary, which describes this evolution uh, of belief, states the word faith being through old French, faith, faith, 
etymological representative of the Latin fides. It began in the 14th century to be used to translate the latter, and in course of time almost supersedes belief, especially in theological language, leaving belief in great measure to merely intellectual process or state. Thus, belief in God no longer means as much as faith in God. Uh, the idea of commitment, it should be noted, is also at the root memory of the original Latin. So etymologically, credo, in, uh, it seems, is a compound of two other Latin words, cor and cordis, or heart, as in the English derivatives, cordial, concord, and accord. The primary meaning of credo in classical Latin was to entrust, to commit to, commit to or to covenant in. This is my blood in the new covenant. Do this. The Catholic creed is an expression of faith that is lived in the heart, cordis, the covenant life and the sacraments in obedience to faith is what God established for our fallen nature. When scriptures looked at through this true image of faith, including proper exegesis combined with the image of the historical church, you'll find that there's not one word in scripture that goes against the Catholic faith. All you have to do is look at it through the eyes of first century Jewish convert. Right. So in the, in the preceding verses, John not only seems to be alluding to Genesis 1, but he's also alluding to Isaiah 9. When he talks about the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, he magnifies Isaiah. So John is describing Jesus not merely as light or even a great light, but light himself. He is all of that light that enlightens men. And this translates to what you're talking about in terms of faith, Luke, because it John is making the illustration that faith is a light uh, uh, on coming on within us, guiding our footsteps. It's, so faith is not something that originates in us. Faith is something that is given to us by walking in Christ. In making this case, uh, John illustrates the utter absurdity that men would reject him. John wants us to understand that in not accepting Jesus, men were not only rejecting a man or being of light, they were rejecting light itself. This is all light, and since this life is a light is the life of all men, we're rejecting all light. So we're struck by the magnitude of the eternal darkness and the eternal death, which is what? The lack of the rejection of the light, the rejection of the life, the rejection of faith. So this idea that we can have faith without obedience is, is absurd. And this is the point that John is making here. Uh, the other thing I want to amplify is the point that you made of uh, the incredible uh, the incredulity of this notion of some nebulous belief system that we fashion our own in image that and that's a sufficient covenant faith when John's very gospel is just drenched with this inspired and grace-filled theology that defines what being a believer is so John is going to great pains to tell us what we must believe and a dire consequences are refusing to believe it. So 
John is making the link that you're talking about, Luke, between belief and obedience. Belief and obedience. They're inseparable. It's like trying to separate water from wet. John is constantly referring to himself as a beloved disciple. And this is not a self-aggrandizement, but he is, as you pointed out, recognizing himself as beholden to the charge and thus seeing himself as a model of where we all stand as beloved disciples. Exactly. I'd like to, like to jump ahead uh, as an example. John says that Jesus said to the beloved disciple, behold your mother. It's clear that he did not hold that message to himself but recognizes it as Jesus' command to us all. And again, John quotes Jesus, he who would be my disciple must take up his cross. John is showing that what belief actually is and that it is much more uh, than a verbal assent to the obvious truth, as you have pointed out. How do you have true belief if you don't live the religion and ritual of the new covenant and obedience to faith? How do you have true belief if you don't behold your mother? I mean, these these are essentials of being inside the mystical body of Christ and the family of God. We're only in, in the mystical body of Christ because Mary gave birth to that body. Do you re- remember the um, the Walenda family, tightrope walkers? Uh, I don't uh, vaguely, vaguely. Okay. Well, there was a story where one of them uh, walked a tightrope uh, at at the uh, over uh, section of Niagara Falls with a wheelbarrow, and he was greeted on the other side with uh, you know throngs of people cheering for him. So he yells down to the crowd, "Who?" Uh, who believes that I can make it back to the other side? And of course, the crowd, you know, erupted in 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 applause that, you know, that they believed that he could make it to the other side. And then he yelled down, "Well, who's going to get in the wheelbarrow then?" <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's what faith is. That's what belief is. It's not real, genuine belief unless you're willing to get in the wheelbarrow. Uh, it's. Uh, you- there's nothing there without the action, you know. <laughs> right. John writes, but as many as received him, he, he gave them power to be made the sons of God to them that believe in his name. This is another one I want our Protestant brothers and sisters to, to key in on. Key in on. <clears throat> I don't have my water with me. <laughs> so obviously there's a process to receiving Jesus that is much more than intellectual assent. When Peter spoke to the crowds at Pentecost and, and they were cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? Peter says, do penance and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, whomsoever the Lord our God shall call. Now, the epistles are written to people and churches already living the faith, and and we must key in on this. The the the, the epistles and the gospels are not a magic eight ball. Uh, they're written to people who uh, 
who have, as adults, repented, are called upon the name of the Lord, then were baptized and received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Romans 10.13 reference to calling on the name of the Lord, and Romans 10.9, where we hear, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Well, this was part of the baptism ritual since the beginning of Christianity. So you have to look at the bigger picture when you see these words. So Protestant brothers and sisters, you need to learn to see scripture through its literal interpretation, not literalist. Paul is writing to people he stayed with for up to three years and who began their Christian life through calling on the name of the Lord as they're baptized into the one church of one doctrine, the breaking of the bread and the prayers. A baptism which destroys original sin in order for them to enter the flesh of Christ, the bride, the veil, to become part of the mystical body. A baptism that saved them from original sin. Paul is addressing people in a way to remind them and to further teach them. If Paul was writing to his epistles to, to give new, succinct teachings on things to people who are with no prior knowledge, then he would be doing a lousy job. He often writes in a rhetorical fashion because he's writing to those who are living the faith. An example, Paul writes, the cup of benediction that we bless is not participation in the blood of Christ. This is obviously a rhetorical question addressed to those participating in the Holy Mass. We know it's the Holy Mass because it was no different in the, in, in the Holy Mass 2,000 years ago than it is today in those words. He says, for if thou confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart that God hath raised him up from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promises for you and for your children. Or confess and be saved by entering into the promise that Abraham fulfilled through baptism into Christ Jesus. So from the beginning of Christianity through the times up to the original reformers to before the 20th century fundamentalist doctrine created by man, being born again was not separated from baptism, folks, in, in which we die to the old man and are born again in the new. To be go- born again was divinization through baptism into Christ Jesus, not a metaphor, a heavenly reality in union with the saints of heaven. Confessing with our mouth and calling on the name of the Lord was part of the baptism ritual for those of the age of reason since the earliest days of Christianity. Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promise is for you and for your children. So many people don't pick up on this word promise. What is the promise? Peter tells us part of the promise in 2 Peter 1.3. As all things are uh, of his divine power, which appertain to life and godliness, are given us the knowledge of him who hath called us by his own proper glory and virtue, by whom he hath given us most great and precious promises, that by these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Divinization as a new people of God, the family of God dying to the Adam of flesh and being quickened into the man of spirit in Christ in our redemption. Irenaeus said understanding comes from understanding God's covenants with man and how those covenants are fulfilled. Paul shows us another aspect of the promise when he writes to the Roman church, not as though the word of the God miscarried, 
For all are not Israelites that are of Israel, neither are all they that are the seed of Abraham children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is to say, not they are the children of the flesh are the children of God, but they that are the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the promise is for you and for your children. When you repent and call upon the name of the Lord, you are baptized into the church, divinized, and become a true member of the family of God. You enter into the election of the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood. For our Protestant brothers and sisters, do you really think that as you become a member of the royal priesthood, you are not obligated to perform the acts of priests under the guidance of the ordained as part of the oath of the new covenant? What does Paul say about this obligation, about this expression of believing in Christ Jesus? He addresses the church of the baptized, baptized saying, For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you will show the death of the Lord until he comes again. Or do this in memory of me. In Greek, memory is the word anamnesis, more properly translated as offer this memorial offering. So again, when it comes back to that word faith, so to believe in Jesus is to live the new covenant that Protestants ignore. And you right. can't fully live the new covenant without showing the death of the Lord to the Father. Right. And, and the, the reason they get it wrong is because of this, this, this paradigm of substitution that they're stuck in. And, and you, I mean, you just nailed it. All right, the promise is that we will be partakers of the divine nature. Well, folks, that's grace. Luke is talking about grace here. God cannot declare an unjust sinner justified. God, that's, that's God lying. God can't lie. So the only way that, a God, that God can declare an unjust sinner justified is if he first makes that unjust sinner justified. And how is that possible? Well, it's done by grace. It's done by us participating in the divine nature. Let's start with a a critical turn of phrase here, Luke. Now, John doesn't say, bam, Jesus made us sons of God. He doesn't say that. He said he gave us the power to become sons of God. Yes. Jesus is giving us a uh, John is giving us a lesson on the power of freely given transforming grace. Once again, we set this against this idea of a simple belief that doesn't cause a change. If the so-called sinner isn't transformed, if the so-called saved the sinner isn't transformed, well it begs the question, what were you saved from? And what was the purpose? It didn't change anything. You're still the same sinner you were, so it doesn't seem to me like you were saved from anything. Are we to be saved from sin so we can persist in sin? No. Bishop Bishop Sheen once observed that to sin is human, but to persist in sin is diabolical. Well, what kind of salvation can exist where a saved sinner still remains the same. And where do we see this demonstrated in Scripture? It's completely alien to Scripture. So those who misuse quotes like Roman 10.9, 
seem to misunderstand what salvation truly is and how it must be reconciled with the justice of God. God came to free us from sin and as a result from its consequences. God didn't come to free us from the consequences of sin without freeing us from sin itself. It goes back to what he came to free us from the slavery of sin. It comes back to what we've said before. Many believe that God declares the unjust man justified, but God can't lie. God cannot declare the unjust man justified. He must make the unjust man justified and then declare him so. Now, it's totally by the merits of Calvary, but it's through sacramental grace and our own sufferings and sacrifices that this work is being completed in us. Luke, did you know that that Martin Luther once described salvation as a blanket of snow over a pile of dung? Yeah, yes. (laughs) No. I think think Luther is bipolar. (laughs) Yeah. So... No, God doesn't declare a pile of dung to be removed uh, by throwing a blanket of snow over it. No, God cleanses the filth that's inside of us. And sometimes it's a painful process, uh, but it's a painful process that ends in our sanctification and our justification. Pretty amazing, and uh, I just I just know how far off how we got so far off with modern Protestantism. It's just once you create faith alone and and, and uh, scripture alone, it just you create entropy, entropy so so damaging. But it, it's I mean I ask the question to people sometimes: Why is it that Protestantism does not only look different than the faith, the disciples, the apostles, and first martyrs, but worlds apart from it, and They'll never give an answer. They can't. Right. So we'll move on to John uh, one thirteen through 17. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory, as it were, of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John beareth witness of him and crieth out, saying, This was he of whom I spoke. He that shall come after me is preferred before me, because he was before me. And of his fullness we all have received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Now, verse 13 is confirmed by Paul in Romans 9, showing us that the family of God is through Isaac. Isaac as a miraculous birth, just like being born again through baptism is a miraculous birth. Paul to the Galatians says, to Abraham where the promise is made, to his seed. He saith not unto his seeds as of any, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So <clears throat> there's that word promise again. And if we continue down the letter to the, uh, to the Galatians, we find how we are born into that one seed where Paul writes for you are, you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you been baptized in Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. 
there is neither male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are the seed of Abraham, heirs according to the promise. There is that faith linked to an act of obedience, and that obedience is baptism into the church. So this is all believing in Christ Jesus. This is entering the new covenant where we live obedience to the faith as the chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, in the promise of Abraham fulfilled. And uh, for, for those verses th- uh, 12 and 14, let, let's go back to Haddock's to fill in the gaps. He gave to them power to be made the adoptive sons of God and heirs of the kingdom of heaven. They are made the children of God by believing and by a new spiritual birth in the sacrament of baptism, not of blood literally, not of bloods, not be the, uh, by the will, desire of the flesh, not by the will of men, nor by human children or firstborn of natural parents, but of God by faith and divine grace. The, and the word was made flesh. This word, our son of God, who was in the beginning from all eternity, at the time appointed by the divine decrees was flesh, uh, example, became man by a true and physical union of his divine person, for which divine nature was inseparable to our human nature, to a human soul and the human body in the womb and of the substance of his virgin mother. For the moment of Christ's mission, as all Christians are taught to believe, he that was God from eternity became also true man. In Jesus Christ, our blessed Redeemer, we believe one divine person with two natures and two wills, the one divine, the other human, by which substantial union, one and the same person became truly both God and man, not two persons or two sons, as Nestorius, Nestorius the heretic pretended. <coughs> by this union and a mutual communication of the properties of each nature, it is true to say that the Son of God remaining unchangeably God, was made man, and therefore that God was truly conceived and born of the Virgin Mary, who on this account was truly the mother of God, that God was born, suffered, and died on the cross to redeem and save us. The word in this manner made man dwelt in us or among us by his substantial union with our human nature, not morally only, nor after such a manner as God is said to dwell in a temple, nor as he is in his faithful servants by a spiritual union and communication with his divine graces, but by such a real union that the same person is truly both God and man. And we see and we saw his glory manifested to the world by many signs and miracles. We, in particular, who are present at his transfiguration, Matthew 17, full of grace and truth. These words in the construction are to be joined in his manner. The word dwelt in us, full of grace and truth, and we have seen his glory. This fullness of grace in Christ Jesus infinitely surpasses the limited fullness which the scripture attributes to St. Stephen in Acts 6-8, or to the Blessed Virgin Mother in Luke 1-28. They are said to be full of grace, only because of an extraordinary communication and greater share of the graces than was given to the saints. But Christ, even as man, had a greater abundance of divine graces 
and being truly God as well as man, his grace and sanctity were infinite, as was his person, as of all the only begotten of the Father. If we consider Christ in himself, and not only as he was made known to men by our outward signs and miracles, St. Christophone says, and others take notice that the word as no way diminished the, the signification and that the sense is we have seen the glory of him who is truly from all eternity the only begotten son. I'll go down further. Uh, verse 16, it says, and, and of his fullness we all have received, not only Jews, but also nations, and grace for grace. It may be perhaps translated grace upon grace. And so they go on and say, God has made a new distribution of grace, has given the light of faith, and caused the gospel of salvation to be announced to all men. He has invited all nations to the faith and knowledge of the truth, Thus he has given us one grace for another, but the second is infinitely greater, more excellent, and more abundant than the first. The following verse seems to insinuate that the evangelist means the law by the first grace and the gospel by the second. Compare likewise Romans 117, the Jews were conducted by faith to faith, by faith in God and the law of Moses to the faith of the gospel announced by Christ. Right. You know, our separated brothers can't fully experience just what's occurring here. They, they get it to a point. They, they understand the words of John the Baptist to the Pharisees. Do not presume to call yourselves sons of Abraham, for God can raise up from these stones sons to, Abra sons to Abraham. So they see us as sons of Abraham in a symbolic way, but not part of the bloodline. And what they don't get is that through the Eucharist and Jesus' actual humanity, we actually participate in the Abrahamic bloodline as our heritage. But unlike the boastful Pharisees, our bloodline is infused with divinity because we not only participate in the humanity of Christ, we participate in the divinity of Christ. So we are at once participating in an earthly heritage and a heavenly heritage. It's, it's mind-blowing when you, when you really think of it, Lou. Yeah, you, you brought, just brought something to mind, and I wanted to look it up. And if you look at the parallel between Israel and, and the church, included in that grace, you see saints in Numbers 6.13, saints in Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, the elect in Deuteronomy, the elect in Colossians, beloved in Deuteronomy, beloved in Colossians, called in Isaiah, called in Romans, church in Psalms and Micah, and church in Ephesians and Acts, the flock in Ezekiel, the flock in Luke and Peter, holy nation in Exodus, holy nation in 1 Peter, Kingdom of Priests in Exodus, Kingdom of Priests in 1 Peter, Peculiar Treasure in Exodus, Peculiar Treasure in 1 Peter, God's People in Hosea, God's People in 1 Peter, Holy People in Deuteronomy, Holy People in 1 Peter, People of Inheritance in Deuteronomy, 
people of inheritance, Ephesians, God's tabernacle, Israel, Leviticus, God's tabernacle in the church, John 1.14, God walks among them, Leviticus 26, God walks among them, 2 Corinthians 6.16. And how does this come about? It can only come about through baptism into the mystical body of Christ. It just doesn't happen by faith. Because if it, if it only happens by their definition of faith, yeah, I was about which, to say that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is which is basically intellectual and verbal assent, then we walk with God through our own efforts. They they they're refuting their own ideology when they're saying, Well, God has to do it all for us, uh, because we can't do any of it, you know, for ourselves. Well, if you exclude divine grace well, then you, you disclude the very possibility that we can actually participate in the saving word of God. So what are you left with? Well, you're left with this idea of, well, God has to throw a blanket of snow over the pile of dung, which is absurd because it reduces God to being powerless to convert us. Uh, yeah. It diminishes. Well, while they, while they, in their minds, they feel like they're elevating God, they're actually diminishing God. Yes, and, and, and I can't emphasize this enough. So before we move on, uh, I want to further build up this image of the mystical nature of baptism, which is in type all across the Old Testament. One example that gives us a clear image of how baptism affects the soul is the imagery of the red heifer. Paul says spiritual things need to be spiritually examined, and essential man uh, perceives not these things. So we've we got to look at the, this book as a spiritual book you know, given by God and not simply as a text that we go through like a lawyer. So do you see the spiritual reality in baptism in, in these verses I'm about to go over? Those who live in obedience to faith of the religion and ritual of the new covenant do. This is obedience. Uh, this obedience is one of the keys to opening up the deepest mysteries of Scripture to the soul. David says, "For behold, I was conceived in iniquities, and in sins did my mother conceive me." Job tells us, "Who can make uh, clean that is conceived of unclean seed? Is it not thou only, oh, only art?" David prophesies about how this uncleanness, cleanness, will be removed from the soul. When he wrote, Thou shalt sprinkle me with hyssop, and I shall be cleansed. Thou shalt wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. And the mystery of the red heifer is, is the spiritual reality of being saved by the blood of the Lamb through baptism. And I'll, I'll, I'll read the uh, description of the red heifer. And they shall take of the ashes of the burning and of the sin offering, and shall pour living waters upon them into a vessel. And a man that is clean shall dip hyssop in them and shall sprinkle therewith all the tent and all the furniture and the men that are defiled with touching any such thing. And in this manner, he that is clean shall purify the unclean on the third and on the seventh day and being expiated the, the seventh day, he shall wash both himself and his garments and be unclean until the evening. If any man be not expiated after this rite, his soul shall perish out of the midst of the church because he hath profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. It was not sprinkled with the water of purification. <clears throat> Think of these words. 
Wear your wedding garment, or there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This precept shall be an ordinance forever. He shall be that sprinkled the water shall wash his garments. What would Jesus say to the woman at the well in John 4, who represents the Gentile church before the wedding feast of the Lamb? But the water that I will give him shall become in him a fountain of water, springing up to life everlasting. He will give his bride living water. If you would have asked, and I would have given you life-giving water. Genesis and the cross also shows us where this living water originates from. Then the Lord cast a deep sleep upon Adam, and when he was fast asleep, he took one of his ribs and filled up flesh for it. But one of the soldiers with a spear opened his side, and immediately there came out blood and water. And John in 1 John shows us the presence of all three that cannot be separated. When he says, who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he that come by water, came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and is the Spirit which testifieth that Christ is the truth. And there are three who give testimony in heaven, the Father, and the Word, and the Holy Spirit. These three are one. And there are three that give testimony in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three are one. Baptism is also the true bronze laver, the Levitical priest need to wash in before entering the veil, fulfilled in the flesh of Christ in the church. We read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base also a bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it, for, the, for Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it when they go out into the, into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn, uh, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord. <coughs> they shall wash with water, lest they die. That's something serious there. So yeah. as Paul showed us when he wrote, not by works of justice we have done, but according to the mercy, he saved us by the laver of regeneration and renovation of the Holy Ghost, whom we have poured forth upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we may be heirs according to the hope of everlasting life. So entering the flesh of Christ through life-giving water is a spiritual imagery here. And Paul tells us in Hebrews, Having therefore, brethren, a confidence in entering into the holies by the blood of Christ, a new and living way which he hath dedicated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in clean water. And of course, this water, spirit, and blood, which creates with penance of a contrite heart, entrance into the promise of Abraham fulfilled. Acts 2.38. But Peter said to them, Do penance and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. A promise that the Jews hoped for, as Paul explained to the church of Ephesus. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of 
promise, having no hope and without God in, in the world. A promise fulfilled through baptism as he explained to the Galatians. For you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. We'll say it again. As many of you have been baptized in Christ. These are those who have entered the promise of Abraham. The promise is a totally new people of God, regenerated in baptism, in which they die to the old man of flesh and original sin and rise in spiritual, as spiritual beings in Christ Jesus. And only God can see the soul. Only God knows how entering the promise changes the soul. As Paul tells us in, uh, uh, to the, right near the Colossians, a promise of entering Christ Jesus. He says, and you are filled in him who is the head of all principalities and power, in whom you are also circumcised. This is the sign of the promise. With a circumcision not made by hand in the spoiling of the body, the flesh, but in the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Entrance in the promise fulfilled. In whom also you are risen again by the faith in the operation of God, who hath raised him up from the dead, and you, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, this is the Gentiles, and he hath quickened together with him, forgiving you all your offenses, blotting out the handwriting of the decree that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he hath taken the same out of the way, fastening it to the cross. This is all in the context of baptism. Through mm -hmm. baptism, we became descendants of Isaac, a new people who have been regenerated through the blood of the Lamb, purified through the true red heifer. Through baptism, we become the family of God, as Paul explains in Romans 9. Not as though the word of the God is miscarried, for all are not Israelites that are of Israel. Neither are they that are the seed of Abraham children, but in Isaac shall they seed be called. That is to say, not they that are the children of the flesh are the children of God, but they that are the children of the promise are accounted for the seed. The church is the spiritual Israel, the mystical body of Christ. The church is the bride. The church is the flesh of Christ. Therefore, Paul says to Abraham, were the promises made into his seed. He hath not into his seeds as of many, but as one thy seed, which is Christ. I want to repeat things so people get the, uh, you know, uh, get this further into their minds. <clears throat> and through baptism, we are divinized, chosen people, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, that with the host of heaven, through our union with heaven as the body of Christ, we offer the true Passover, the general redemption of the world. As Peter tells us, as all things of his divine power, which appertain to life and godliness, are given to us through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own proper glory by, uh, and virtue, by whom has given us the great and precious promises. So this entire new people who are regenerated through the Holy Spirit in baptism, your chosen people, your holy nation, your royal priesthood. This is also an election and predestination. Calvin failed in this understanding. We are not predestined to heaven or hell. We are predestined into the royal priesthood that offers through our high priest the true Passover for the sins of the world. This is what it means to be born again, people. Protestantism took a fork in the road that led its world, that let it work. It led the concept of Protestantism, even the beginning of the concept, worlds apart from the true essence of the new covenant. In this grace given freely, in this preparation in which the bride is cleansed, is the reason for the book of John. 
the bride is prepared for the wedding feast of the lamb and union to the groom through the Eucharist. Right. John and Paul uh, delve into the depth of the faith probably more than any other of the New Testament writers, so it shouldn't be much of a surprise that, that their works comprise 19 of the 27 New Testament books. And the work of salvation is a mystery. Though some of our separated brothers like to reduce it to a, a penal substitution fallacy where Christ does everything and I do nothing, there's a great tension and mystery and paradox at work here in the way that we are enabled and even required to cooperate in the saving work of Jesus. And scholars have struggled for centuries with understanding as both a divine work and a human work that is play, that is not placed upon us, but it's worked through us. The great mystery is how God infuses the divine to the material, the spirit, the blood, and the water. Through the water and the blood, God commandeers control of our will while it still remains our own free will. The truth is that God does not so much deny us what we want, but really gives us a light to see that what we think we want is not what we really want at all. What we truly want, the happiness that we truly seek, is him. But sometimes that desire has been masked and buried under layers in our sin-sick souls, and the water and the blood take on the role of divine medicine, burning away that spiritual bacteria, sometimes at the cost of suffering, it restores our souls to the health and vitality with which he created them. Can't be said enough, Luke. Faith is not an act. It's a journey. It is following Christ up Calvary Hill and having our rust scraped off during the climb. And John is showing us how this works through sacramental grace. And this religion and ritual that's written all across the New Testament isn't simply a story of, you know, uh, of a first century church. It is what began the obedience to the faith the church has lived for 2,000 years. And God doesn't do anything unless there's a reason for it. And if he establishes obedience to the faith, he knows what our fallen nature needs a thousand times better than we do. He knows perfect knowledge. Right, and so if he's established that, that's what we're called to live. No, no matter if if we think it's you know, if if we think it's uh, too ritualistic, uh, our brothers and sisters, it, it, it's still there, you know, it, it's still present. Therefore, it is part of obedience to the faith. I mean, it's a very simple argument to make. You could build on that over and over and over again. And to show the true nature of these of these rituals, but it's at at the simplest form, God set it up for us to live. Period, and He knows what we we need better than we do. Right. So move on to John one nineteen through twenty eight, and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent from Jerusalem priests and Levites to him to ask him, "Who art thou?" and confessed 
confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou the prophet? And he answered, no. They said, therefore unto him, who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As said the prophet Isaiah, and they that were sent were the, the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, why then dost thou baptize if thou be not Christ, nor Elias, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there have stood one in the midst of you whom you know not. The same is he that shall come after me, who is preferred before me the latchet of whom shoe I am not worthy to loose. These things were done at Bethania, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. <clears throat> so the priests and Levites knew the scriptures, so they most likely knew that John the Baptist was quoting from Isaiah, showing them that, that he was the messenger of God coming to make way for the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah prophecies, be comforted, be comforted, my people, saith your God. Speak ye to the heart of Jerusalem and call to her, for her evil is come to an end. Her iniquity is forgiven. She hath received of the hand of the Lord double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the desert, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness the paths of our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough ways plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh together shall see that the mouth of the Lord has spoken. <clears throat> so John the Baptist says he baptizes with water. Water only is the baptism of repentance for the Jews in symbol. But Christ's baptism is the power of the cross and the mystical water, blood, and spirit that flows from the rib of the true Adam of life, giving birth to his bride, is much more than just getting wet. Uh, I think we've proven that. The only way you can enter the family of God and become partakers of divine nature is through the death of the nature of the first Adam of flesh. Therefore, Paul, referring to Christ's baptism in the name of the Trinity, says to the church at Rome, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And not only so, but also we glory in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received reconciliation. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and by sin death, and so death passed upon all men, and whom all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when the law was, was not. But death reigned from Adam unto Moses, and even over them also all uh, who have not sinned after the similitude of the transgression of Adam, who is a figure of him who was to come. And we should not forget Galatians 3.26, which shows us this reconciliation is the promise fulfilled. And Romans 9 showing us entrance to the family of God. And Second Peter showing us partaking the divine nature. Right. Luke, John gives a lot of uh, screen time, so to speak, here to the question of the baptism of John as opposed to baptism after Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, uh, which we honor today, by the way, ironically enough. 
Uh, it is painfully clear that John is is bringing this out as something of, of critical emphasis, and our separated brothers downplay baptism almost as if it's an after afterthought. If Pope John Paul II selected it as one of the five mysteries of light, which he added to the Holy Rosary, I believe it was in 2002. And John Paul II is elevating Jesus' baptism to the same level of the nativity and the crucifixion. And I think it's fair to say that it's the seminal event in terms of importance that it is the intersection of the nativity and the crucifixion. It's the, the baptism is the intersection of those two. And here again, we experience these three miraculous parts that you've talked about. The spirit that overshadowed Mary, the water that poured over Jesus, and the blood that poured from him. These three events are linked in a way that's it's difficult to even describe. Uh, and and uh, it is so amazing that we have that Old Testament and in the law, embedded in the law, and what the in the second legislation of Mosaic law, the ritual law, we see the imagery where God gave us this, so that we can see how the sacraments actually affect our soul. And uh, the uh, red heifers, you know, a good example. Yeah, but uh, on, on a side note, if you look at John in uh, one of the Gospels, it says he wore camel's hair. Well, the outer tent of the meeting tent that God just uh, wanted built, the very specific instructions was uh, uh, the, the the camel's hair uh, as as the outer layer, and then you move into the inner layer. And before you get there, you have to wash in the bronze lobber, which uh, they had to wash in the Levitical priest or else they would you know, possibly uh, die. And then you hear the words, unless you're born again of water and spirit, you should not enter the kingdom of heaven. So where are we going after we uh, move from the lobber? We're going into the veil, which Paul calls the flesh of Christ. And what is in there? It is the table of the showbread, which has become the Eucharist. It is the menorah, which has become the life-giving cross over uh, the, the salvation of the cross over all ages of time. And what has happened when the veil ripped from heaven to earth? You see the image of Hebrews 12:22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the New Jerusalem, to the church of the firstborn, to thousands of angels, to the spirits of the just made perfect. That's the Holy Mass right there, starting with baptism. And it's all foreshadowed. Uh, yes, previews. The Old Testament is nothing more than preview of coming attractions. Uh, and and it's, it's just amazing how, how many, you know, I, I'm in the building trade. And, and I love to look at the Old Testament as the blueprints. If you want to know how the building is built, you go to the blueprints. And the Old Testament is the, is the blueprints and the church. Uh, the Catholic Church is the is the finished building. Yeah, yeah. Boy, we're not even hardly going to get to chapter two. I mean, this is just you could go into so many things. It, it'll take you off in another direction, but 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 it all builds the bigger seamless fabric, the the, the tapestry. Yeah, so, it's 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 a just 
it's so deep. It's almost like you could mine it forever and and and, and not even scratch the surface of the of the the treasure that's there. Yes, definitely. And, and what's sad is the only way you could do it is if you're one who lives a sacramental life and receives those graces. It's the only right. way you can see it this way. So we're at John 128. These things were done in Beth Bethania beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. <clears throat> now, Bethania was the home of Mary and Martha and, and their brother Lazarus. It is on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. And it was around two miles from Jerusalem, which was considered as a Sabbath day's journey uh, from Jerusalem. So this is where Jesus cursed the fig tree and where he stayed before his entrance into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey on Palm Sunday. Uh, Bethany is also where Christ ascended back to heaven and where before he ascended, he gave them the, the great commission to make disciples of all nations uh, by baptizing them. Uh, we'll go on to John 129 through, through 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him, and he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who take away the sins of the world. This is he whom I said, After me there cometh a man who is preferred before me, because he was before me, and I knew him not, but that he may be made manifest in Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John gave testimony, saying, I saw the Spirit coming down as a dove from heaven. And he remained upon him, and I knew him not. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, he it is that baptizeth with the Holy Spirit. And I saw and gave testimony that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, the messenger of the Lord, who according to Luke's gospel, was filled with God's grace from the beginning, John the Apostle calls Jesus both the Son of God and the Lamb of God, the one who prepares the way of, of, of the Lord, like Isaac. Luke tells us John the Baptist's birth was a miraculous birth. So Elizabeth was beyond birthing years and called barren. Sarah was beyond birthing years and called barren. The angel that visited Zechariah told Zechariah that Elizabeth would bear a child, that he would, uh, would name him John. Luke writes, and thou shalt call his, his name John, and thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice in his nativity, for he shall be great uh, before the Lord, and shall drink no wine or strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, and even from his mother's womb. And he shall convert many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias that he may turn the hearts of the fathers unto the children, and the incredulous to the wisdom of the just, to prepare unto the Lord a perfect uh, people. <clears throat> so, well, I think the reference to perfect people is a people unlike those who failed in the Old Covenant. From the beginning, these people on, on the narrow road of transforming grace, for the most part, will we'll keep the New Covenant. So we have now done so far longer than the, than, the, than, than the Old Covenant existed. I mean, we kept it that long. So the Old Covenant existed for around 1,300 years. We are at 2,000, uh, just about. So John the Apostle, in quoting John the Baptist, introduces us to the phrase, the Lamb of God, from the beginning. 
showing us that in Christ is not the type of the Passover lamb, but its fulfillment in Christ, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The unblemished lamb was killed. The blood was placed on the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites in the city of Sin, Egypt. The lentil and doorpost mystically showing the sign of the cross, uh, the lentil being in the name of the Father, the doorpost, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and in type. After the baptism in the blood of Christ, those inside the homes in the new covenant, the church, would consume the entire lamb so the angel of death would pass over. And the first Passover of the old covenant, consuming the lamb's spreading of the blood, resulted in the angel of death passing over. Yet the lamb is also a marriage feast. The, the book of Revelations was, was most likely written before the destruction of the temple. And John in Revelation 19 says, After these things I heard, as it were, the voice of much, much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and power is to our God. For true and just are his judgments who have judged the great harlot which corrupted the earth with her fornications and have revenged the blood of his servants at our hands. The great harlot was Jerusalem who fornicated with pagan gods. Jerusalem that killed the prophets and fornicated with Rome in the killing of Jesus. In the next few verses, John in his revelation tells us, And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of great thunders, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, hath reigned. Let us be glad. And we don't see this great king. Let us be glad and rejoice and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has prepared herself, and it is granted to her that she should clothe herself with fine linen, glittering and white, for the fine linen are the justification of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are they that are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith to me, These words of God are true. The Gentile wife is prepared through baptism, robes of white. So John writing his gospel from the very beginning is leading us to the marriage of God and man and the true Passover of the supper of the Lamb. And as we discuss in the Gospel of Matthew, the image of covenant marriage between God and man is consummated and ended through, a, through not a party, but through sacrifice. Also, John the Baptist tells us that the Lamb will take away the sins of the world. How does he do this? He will take away the sins of the world through baptism in the mystical water, blood, and spirit. He will take away the sins of the world by the true Passover and the Holy Eucharist always being present before the Father throughout the world as the covenant memorial of the cross, as what truly prevents the angel of death, as the true veil between the Father and the sins of the world. And the catechism uh, just nails us. Uh, we'll start at the catechism, uh, we'll start part 1337. The Lord, having loved those who were his own, loved them to the end. Knowing that the hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father, in the course of a meal, he washed their feet and gave them the commandment of love in order to leave them a pledge of this love in order never to, and to depart from his own and to make them sharers in his Passover. He instituted the Eucharist as the memorial of his death and resurrection and commanded his apostles to celebrate it until his return. Thereby, he constituted them priests of the New Testament. 
the three synoptic gospels and St. Paul have handed on to us the account of the institution of the Eucharist, St. John, for his part, reports the words of Jesus in the synagogue of Capernaum that prepare for the institution of the Eucharist. Christ calls himself the bread of life come down from heaven. Jesus chose the time of Passover to fulfill what he had announced at Capernaum, giving his disciples his body and his blood. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us, that we may eat it. They went and prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he sat at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it again until it is filled in the kingdom of God. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after supper, saying, The cup which is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. By celebrating the Last Supper with his apostles in the course of the Passover meal, Jesus gave the Jewish Passover its definitive meaning. Jesus passed over to his father by his death and resurrection. The new Passover is anticipated in the supper and celebrated in the Eucharist, which fulfills the Jewish Passover and anticipates the final Passover of the church in the glory of the kingdom. The command of Jesus to repeat his actions and words until he comes does not only ask us to remember Jesus and what he did, it is directed at the liturgical celebration by the apostles and their successors of the memorial of Christ, of his life and death and of his resurrection and his intercession in the presence of the Father. From the beginning, the church has been faithful to the Lord's command. Of the church of Jerusalem, it is written, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. So this is what the Gospel of John is all about. He's heralding the coming of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And let's return to Hadox for more vision on these verses 29-34. Behold the Lamb of God. John let the Jews know who Jesus was by diverse testimonies. First, by telling them he was the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins or sins of the world, who was come to be their Redeemer and to free mankind from the slavery of sin. Secondly, that he was greater than he and before him, through born, though born after him. Third, that God had revealed to him that Jesus was to baptize in the Holy Ghost. Fourth, that he saw the Spirit descending upon him from heaven and remaining upon him. Fifth, that he was the Son of God, who taketh away. It was only a being like Christ, in whose person the divine and human natures were united, that could effectually take away sins of the world. As man, he was enabled to suffer, and as God, his sufferings obtained a value equal to the infinite atonement required. All right. There's just so much to address here. I love the way John uses foreshadowing and subtlety. He, he slips in little hints like, you know, to most people they would go unnoticed. And, and John's is the only one of the four Gospels 
that doesn't overtly deal with the destruction of Jerusalem, for example. And even when he does address it in his revelation, he, he wraps it in symbolism and allegory. And it's intriguing how the Holy Spirit inspired this, inspired this gospel to be written so differently than the others. And John just almost casually inserts Jesus' cursing of the fig tree on the day after his baptism. Well, the fig tree was long known as a symbol of Israel and the people of God in their holy city, Jerusalem. The cursing of the fig tree is a, is a big foreshadowing, a preview of, of the coming woes for the harlot city, just as you were describing that is displayed in the, in the book of Revelation. Uh, John gives us wave after wave and layer upon layer, and it's almost as if he wrote his gospel as here it comes. The key to unlocking the book of Revelation. It, it carefully develops the character of Jesus as the divine being of light that we see in such a thunderous way in the book of Revelation. He also develops the water of baptism, sanctifying grace, and the sacred blood all rising to conquer sin, death, and what the book of Revelation describes as a synagogue of Satan. And it's all presented in such dramatic fashion with the old Jerusalem being thrown down and the new Jerusalem descending from heaven. And John's setting the stage for all of that right here in presenting baptism and the supper of the Lamb. And I'm really having difficulty even describing it, but it's breathtaking. Yeah, and, and it is the key. It is the key. And it's a, and it all comes together when we kneel before the Eucharist or when we watch the priests hold the Eucharist in the air in, in, in the air to the Father as Alta Christi. And say, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Happier those who are called to the Supper of the Lamb. Amen. So we're at John 1, 35 through 39. The next day again, John stood and two of his disciples. And beholding Jesus walked, walking, he saith, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turning and seeing them, following him, saith to them, what seek you? He said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, be an interpreted master, where dwellest thou? He saith to them, come and see. They came and saw where he abode, and they stayed with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. The, the second apostle here could have been John himself. The tenth hour will be uh, 4 p.m. This shows Jesus' eagerness to teach even, even throughout the night. To which Augustine responded, uh, what a blessed day they spent, what a blessed night. Again, John the Baptist addressed Jesus as the Lamb of God. Through the spirit of Eliza, John proclaimed the wedding feast to come. And John knows that his disciples, when the Lamb was to come, would no longer follow him, but the true uh, Lamb of God and, and thought nothing of his disciples following Christ is meant to be. Yeah, you know, it's really puzzling to see the the lengths that John goes to, to to downplay himself here as the author of this book or even as one of the principal characters. 
And uh, it, it's just such an amazing contrast to the book of Revelation where he identifies himself in the first four verses of the book. It becomes even more puzzling when you believe, as I do, and you as well, that the book of Revelation was written almost 30 years earlier. So it's just kind of puzzling, isn't it, the way that John downplays himself here. And he really never comes out and admits that he wrote the book, although you know the church knows that he did. But he never says, I, John, wrote this gospel, whereas in Revelation, it comes right out and, and, and says that I, John, was on the island of Patmos. And uh, isn't that striking that he, he, he kind of flees from identifying himself in, in the gospel where that's not the case in Revelation? I, I just love to hear your comments on that. Uh, it, it brings up a, an image in my mind. John believes the Holy Spirit wrote the gospel and he witnessed revelations. Yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah, that that is that is very, very interesting because, uh, yeah, you're right. In Revelation, he says himself that he was called up to heaven and and wrote down what what he what he witnessed. Um, yeah, that's an interesting insight. Well, let's see if we get at least through the chapter. <laughs> we were in that time. <laughs> uh, John uh, 140 to 48. And Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who had heard of John and followed him. He findeth first his brother Simon and saith to him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looking upon him, saith, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is interpreted Peter. On the following day he would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and Jesus saith to him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip finding Nathanael, and saith to him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Jesus, the son of Joseph of Nazareth. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything come from Nazareth? Philip saith to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and he saith to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under a fig tree, I saw thee. Nathaniel said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh, Galilee was looked down on because there were many Gentiles living there. Nathaniel lived near Nazareth in, in the Galilee, and Nazareth is in the Galilee. So there may have been a, a petty rivalry between these communities. Now, this shows the human nature of things here. This can be seen as kind of a, a humorous exchange also. Uh, mm -hmm. Is he saying what is worse than Galilee? Nazareth? <laughs> Uh, the exchange shows us the humanity of the apostles. So in addition, the prophecy says that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So thinking Jesus was born in Nazareth would create a problem. There's no prophecy of the Messiah coming from Nazareth. So as we discussed in the Gospel of Matthew, Messiah means king and Christ means anointed. So in the beginning of John's Gospel, we already have the proclamations that 
Jesus is the Son of God, showing, showing that he is God. He is the true Passover, lamb for the general redemption of the world. He is Messiah and king. And soon John will show us that he is the bridegroom of the Gentile bride. The king is now gathering his first court of the princes of Galilee in, in the Galilee, the beginning of the magisterium of the Catholic Church, which we see in Acts 15, where James quoted the prophet Amos, showing the king of David reestablished as the church of Christ. Also, before Christ, the Jews understood that the Messiah would be the son of God, as the Psalms tells us. Uh, Psalms 2.7, the Lord said to me, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Yeah. So I would just point out that though it is true that Jesus was born in Bethlehem on December uh, of 2 B.C., uh, he entered into humanity in Nazareth in March. So, uh, And knowing that I'm going to see both of those locations this year is uh, something that gives me chills. Yeah, that's awesome. Nathanael said to him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under a fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, thou believest? Greater, Greater things than thee shall thou see. And he saith to him, Amen, amen, I say to you, you shall see the heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Nathanael's eyes were open when he realized that Jesus already knew everything that transpired between him and Philip before he even met Nathanael. Therefore, Nathanael responded with a question that shows a clear understanding of of the Psalms and of the Son of God. The Jews understood that there was only one God, so by Nathanael asking Jesus if he was the son of God, is asking him if he was God. Jesus shows the truth of this by reading Nathanael's mind and responds by showing him that he was correct. He knew that what transpired between him and Philip, therefore he is the son of God. Of course, this is just a very small miracle, so it points to the humility and desire for Nathanael and his desire for it to be true. Then Jesus really rocks his world with his next response. He places in Nathanael's mind the image of the Son of Man from the prophecy of Daniel, where Daniel saw the physical manifestation of God as the Son of Man in the heavens. In Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7 we read, I beheld therefore in the vision of the night, and lo, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. He came even to the Ancient of Days, and they presented him before me. And he gave him power and glory in the kingdom, and all peoples, tribes, and tongues shall serve him in his power, in everlasting power, that shall not be taken away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. And, of course, Jesus told us that he would build his church, which the early church understood as the kingdom of heaven, the rule of heaven come to earth. Right. You know, it all seems so clear to us, and we wonder why it wasn't clear to them, especially when the the, uh, book of Daniel gives a timeline. And there were a lot of people that realized, uh, that understood that, but there were a lot of people that didn't, that understood that there was a timeline um, uh, as to when the Messiah would arrive, and and Jesus fulfilled that. Looks like we're at the end. (laughs) <laughs> Luke, it took us two full hours to get through a single chapter. I think that's the first time that's ever happened to us. And, uh, wow, there's just 
so much in this first chapter. So uh, I can't wait till till next week to come back and tackle chapter two. Why don't you leave us with a closing prayer? So that our Protestant brothers can pray with us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us a stay our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. God bless you, and I can't wait to see you next Monday. We'll pick it up with Chapter 2 of the Gospel of John one week from today. God bless everybody. Have a wonderful week. Thank you. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to keep fans across the country in the action on the biggest game days of the year. Whether you're one of 65,000 fans at Allegiant Stadium or you're streaming the game at home with America's fastest download speeds powered by fiber. Whenever it matters most, Cox keeps you connected. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla of Speed Test Intelligence Data. Fixed median download speeds. USQ3 2023. Get ready for college with the PCC Automotive Technology Scholarship at Pep Tech High School's Tucson campus, now open for enrollment. Gain job-focused training in high school, preparing for graduation and beyond. Secure your accredited high school diploma with four-day weeks, small classes, and free meals to all students. Join our garden club, basketball program, or student leadership to enhance your skills. At Pep Tech, your future is our focus. Apply online at pepptext.org or in person today.